A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 15th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Ukraine is on fire. This is a message to Russia from the United Nations. The country is being decimated before the eyes of the world. The United Nations General Secretary Antonio Guterres spelled out the crimes against humanity being carried out by Russia in Ukraine. The impact on civilians is reaching terrifying proportions. Countless innocent people, including women and children, have been killed. After being hit by Russian forces, roads, airports and schools lie in ruins. According to the World Health Organization, at least 24 health facilities have suffered attacks. Hundreds of thousands of people are without water or electricity. And with each passing hour, two things are increasingly clear. First, it kept getting worse. Second, whatever the outcome, this war will have no winners, only losers. Antonio Guterres, meanwhile, the UN Chief of Political Affairs, Rosemary Di Carlo, told the United Nations Security Council yesterday that the Russian invasion has shaken the foundation of European security. The war in Ukraine is the most severe test the OSCE and related regional frameworks have faced since their creation. The Russian invasion has shaken the foundations of the European security architecture to its core. As we meet, the bloodshed continues to worsen. Russian forces have now launched daily deadly airstrikes in the west of Ukraine. Ukrainian cities are under unrelenting shelling and bombardment, with many civilians killed daily. Those voices uh, from uh, the United Nations uh, yesterday and ongoing concern for the people uh, across uh, the Ukraine. But as you've been hearing, particular concern this week for people in the west of uh, the country following uh, those deadly airstrikes on that army military base over the weekend, uh, 15 miles uh, away from uh, the Polish border. Uh, let's go to the west of Ukraine now and speak once again to Vladimir Kuhn. 
Cusick, who is living in Lviv. And a very good morning to you, Vladimir, and thank you indeed for joining us. People will remember you spoke to us a couple of weeks ago uh, and that uh, you had lived on Dundalk, in actual fact, for 19 years before returning home a, a couple of years ago. Thanks for coming back to us today. I think things have probably changed somewhat for you where you are uh, the, compared to two weeks ago. There's a lot more people there now and a, a lot more anxiety, I think, than would have been the case then. Uh, good morning, Michael. Good, good morning yeah, to you. Uh, definitely you're saying what... Uh, well, it's too many strangers around. Uh, uh, they were in Balaclava and they, uh, uh, they uh, have a lot of things. So many checks going around at all. Well, I mean, uh, the, all uh, the checkpoints in the roads, the main roads, is completely uh, clear now. Because a lot of uh, people are complaining because uh, everyone wants to go to work and make some money because it's very difficult in the present minute. Tell me uh, about uh, that bombing over the weekend. Uh, how did that play on people's minds locally? Well, uh, locally people here just afraid. Like uh, everyone is going to buy some food, clothes, uh, medicine, and they seriously afraid because it's uh, actually like you said a few minutes ago. West of Ukraine now it's seriously attack. And you feel much closer uh, to the war now at this stage. Well. Like I said in the previous interview with you and your colleagues, uh, the war is going to be start seriously. And it's uh, uh, like uh, I said, we have uh, Yavori was the completely bombed and attacked and destroyed. <laughs> That's only 20 kilometers from Polish border. It's not far away from Europe. Yeah. Well, this is it. And we're all very much aware that that's uh, the NATO boundary as well and what uh, an attack on NATO might mean for world security, let alone European security or Ukrainian security, for that matter. Uh, do, you, uh, do, you, do you believe that there's any end in sight? We're hearing about uh, the ongoing diplomatic efforts uh, to try and create some sort of a, a peace tr- uh, tr- tr- treaty. Uh, do you think that that is a possibility at this stage, Vladimir? Uh, there's no possibility with uh, Mr. Putin. Completely no. He doesn't care. He wants the war. That's all. Do you think and that... That's his war. Uh, that's his word, and he he is not going to be stepped back at all. Do you think that he will win the war? Well, I don't think so. He is going to win the war because he is hiding himself. Uh, two weeks ago, he is sitting in the safe place, and and uh, and present minute. His right hand, high, uh, his right hand, oh, who is uh, actually in his, uh, uh, what do you call it, <laughs> mm, 
military or whatever, you mm. know, the, all them. His generals. Generals, um, the commanders or whatever it's mm. called. They all want to fight because he is paying the money and that's all. Uh-huh. And you, you know yourself, just just a second, sorry for the mm-hmm. for you. A war is a serious money, that's all. And I should once again explain to listeners, there is a, a delay in the line, which means that sometimes you'll talk over me and sometimes I'll talk over you without doing so intentionally because of that delay. Uh, that's what happens. Uh, and war, as you say, it is very expensive, Vladimir. Russia, uh, according to America, has asked China for assistance. Uh, what have you been... No, 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 no way. No, nobody going to support uh, no Chinese, uh, no America. They, well, maybe the America will, but I don't think so. No, America. Well, okay. America is saying that China uh, has been asked by Russia to help Russia. Uh, yeah, because uh, I was listening to the news today, and uh, one of the Putin uh, uh, friends, whatever it's called from his government, uh, he's saying was that Russia is going to be died uh, by uh, July. Be no food, no money left, nothing. Because everybody from Europe, from America, from Australia, all them big countries, they, they completely close all the investments and everything to Russia. Nobody wants to buy the Russian gas and all the, the stuff they support. Uh, supplied before so they going to be died and I tell you one thing I was actually speaking to my friend from the he lives uh, in the east of Russia mm, Russia it's a big country it's a huge country completely mm. looks in the map you see yourself Ukraine it's nothing <laughs> small country mm. well Big population, but it's a really small country, you know. So, but <clears throat> so nobody wants that serious war because it's going to be serious war. And uh, if he is going to use the nuclear bomb, everybody's going to die. Yeah. Not only Ukraine, Russia all Europe and everything. Well, that's the problem and uh, there is an information war going on uh, at the moment, uh, as you know, uh, and uh, the Russian population are being fed one version of uh, this story which seems to be completely untrue. You're watching television there. I think you said you were watching French television. Have you seen Marina Osanikova? Uh, a former, yes, I did, I did. A former I, Russian I did. journalist. Let, let me let me just explain this to our, our listeners, if I can, Vladimir, and then I might ask you to do a translation of your president reacting to what happened on Russian TV yesterday. Uh, let's uh, set the scene for people listening at home. Uh, the television news is going on. If you can uh, imagine uh, Katrina Perry is reading the news uh, on television or something like that. Next of all, there's somebody standing behind her shouting. So you'll hear a newsreader talking and then you'll hear somebody behind her shouting uh, and what they're saying is stop the war don't believe the propaganda take a, a listen to this том как смягчить воздействие западных санкций говорил сегодня Михаил Мишустин на встрече со своим белорусским коллегой российский премьер подчеркнул надо усилить сотрудничество в рамках союзного государства а на совещании в правительстве обсуждали как сохранить доступность 
And there it cut, and it immediately then went to a taped recording. All sounding very calm, calm uh, the screen uh, gone from the live broadcast, and no sight then of Marina Osanikova, a very brave lady who has been arrested, and we assume will die as a result of the stand that she took on national television in Russia yesterday. Former Channel One uh, broadcaster herself. Uh, And your president, Vladimir, thanked her in his uh, address last night. Uh, We'll take a listen to what he had to say and maybe you translate it for us. Реальные факты своим друзьям, своим близким, родным и лично той девушке, которая вошла в студию Первого канала с плакатом «Против войны». Тем, кто не боится протестовать, пока еще ваша страна не закрылась окончательно от всего мира, превратившись в очень большую Северную Корею, вы должны бороться, вы должны не потерять Right, uh, a familiar voice to you, of course, Vladimir, uh, that is uh, the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, what was he saying uh, about that bravery uh, that we heard a moment ago by that journalist, Marina Osanikova? Well, he said he is uh, very proud what he tried to do. She tried to do the best of what she can well, I mean, she tried to tell people the truth through the all media and everything, but uh, it's a lot of difficulty in present minute because it's too many cover versions is going on. Mm. And, uh, uh, well, I tell you one thing. It's not, well, Russia, yes, correct, but uh, we wars have attacked the west of Ukraine from Belarus. The Lukashenko, that's the problem present minute for everyone in mm. Ukraine. Well, I mean, in the west of Ukraine. Yeah. And, uh, well, I I have a lot of friends from Belarus, and they actually they chatting with me in a messenger or a Facebook, you know, and they said, uh, well, they call me Volodya. <laughs> that's my proper name, not Vladimir. Okay. I don't want to be Vladimir. <laughs> okay. Mm. And uh, uh, they telling me like with so many people was actually looking for the safe place. But I tell you something, uh, Michael. Mm. No safe place left. Well, the west of Ukraine is not safe place in present minute at all. No. And it's rare acts of bravery, I think, like that uh, on the Russian side. Uh, Someone who is a citizen uh, of the country that is the aggressor against your people. uh, Yes, uh, well, it's so many, actually, Russian people, they don't like the way the Putin do. Mm. Well... They want to well. They want to go outside in the roads and do protesting and everything, you know. But mm. well, they afraid of the families. Yeah. Because he, he is a serious Hitler. It's second Hitler. 
Well, that's what a lot of people are saying. President Zelensky uh, personally thanked uh, that girl yesterday uh, and said to those who are not afraid to protest before your country closes totally from the rest of the world, turning into a very big North Korea, you need to fight. You shouldn't miss your own chance. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, uh, well, I, I forget to explain about Korea. Yeah, that's correct. Well, so basically, <laughs> Uh, it's a huge, serious country, you know. So, uh, like, uh, they, well, but nobody knows what they're going to do and they, uh, which side they're going to take. That's the problem. Because and they have serious, uh, powerful army and they have so many arsenals and, and guns and files. Hmm. And what about you, Vladimir, though, um, uh, in terms of the war effort? Uh, I think you said the last time uh, you intended to fight. I, I gather that you uh, haven't uh, taken up arms yet. Do you intend to do that or are you prepared to do that? Well, I am like, I mean, first of all, I am look after all my friends, all my family. And, uh, well, like uh, I do a lot of voluntary work and uh, so so the like I mean I do the maximum what can I do for myself uh, like what can I manage because I still have family you know I'm not mm. going to let my family alone okay. well I mean look uh, to be honest a lot of people asking me why are you still staying here like I mean you no problem to left the country because you are Irish citizen so I said what for the start I born in Ukraine, and my blood is Ukrainian blood. Okay. Well, stay and safe. I, 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 I am not going to disappear, and I am, go, I am not going to be hiding like a rat or the mouse and waiting when it's going to be finished. It's not going to be finished. No. It's only okay. a start. All right, Vladimir, well, stay safe and keep in touch. And thank you for taking our call again. I'm sure there's a lot of people in Dundalk who'll be glad to hear your voice, given that you lived there for 19 years. And thank you, as I say, for joining us on the programme this morning. That is Vladimir Kuzik speaking to us from Lviv. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, government ministers are in different corners of uh, the world uh, to represent uh, the country over uh, the St. Patrick's Day Festival week, if you like. Uh, But today uh, they're coming together by video uh, for a video call to discuss the crisis that the country faces in terms of facilitating the amount of refugees that are expected into Ireland, some 80 to 100,000 refugees, 20,000 offers to house those people so far uh, by individuals in spare rooms or empty homes or indeed in buildings uh, that may or may not end up being suitable. But there is going to be a huge demand on every service uh, that uh, the country provides as a result of so many many people coming 
uh, all at once. Uh, but before we even get to that, let's take a, a look at uh, the problem in homelessness uh, and how 1,111 young people that's aged between 18 and 24 are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. And to speak to Ono Brin, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I take it uh, they're a particular cohort uh, with uh, particular needs uh, and uh, differ in many ways uh, to many of uh, the people who find themselves in emergency accommodation because uh, of uh, family issues and so on. I take it that a a lot of the people that we're talking about in this cohort are, are young and single people, are they? They are, and, and, and the reason why we're, I suppose, we're talking about this week is yesterday uh, a deadline for submissions to government for a new youth homelessness strategy closed. So they announced the, the consultation process some weeks ago. Uh, and as will have done a, a number of organisations, Sinn Féin made a submission making a second set of recommendations to government. The, the figure of 1,111 young people aged between 18 and 24 accessing emergency accommodation isn't, of course, the full figure uh, of young people experiencing homelessness because we have very many young people of that age group who don't access emergency accommodation, but they would be sofa-surfing, sleeping between family and friends or living in wholly inadequate accommodation situations. So the number is much larger, uh, but there there is a need, and in fairness to governments, this is the reason why they're doing the strategy, there is a need to have a particular focus uh, on this group of people uh, to ensure that they don't get lost between the more standard uh, single-person homelessness that we deal with on a regular basis and family homelessness, adults and children. Mm. Because far too often this group of the 18 to 24-year-olds kind of fall between the cracks of public policy and we need to make sure everything is done to reduce the number of young people becoming homeless but also to make sure they get out of emergency accommodation or self-serving as quickly as possible rather than getting entrenched in that uh, longer-term cycle of rough sleeping sofa-surfing, emergency accommodation, etc. Mm. Well, you don't uh, give a single person uh, a house for themselves to live in, and that's the type of uh, challenge, I take it, that you face with single people, to put it quite simply. Uh, and uh, what one of uh, the policies uh, that compounded this problem being uh, the uh, policies in relation to bedsits and affordable accommodation for single people. So I suppose there's, there's three groups of people we're talking about. The first is young people who uh, uh, want to leave the family home at the age of you know 18 to 24. They've got themselves a, a first job in life. Uh, and the cost of rental accommodation is just so expensive at this point in time, they can't get out. There's also people who are forced to leave the family home as a result of, result of relationship breakdown and they face the same problem. But then there's a very specific group of people who are in state care. Um, um, and uh, when they turn 18, yeah. they're no longer eligible for those supports, and therefore they're, they're kind of out in the big bad world, uh, and again, really struggle to find uh, uh, affordable single-person accommodation. Two key issues here. The first is local authorities have not been delivering sufficient volume of one-bedroom accommodation units. About half the social housing waiting lists across the state are for one beds. Uh, uh, for a very long period of time, it was about 30%. Yet very, very few one-beds are actually delivered by our local authorities. And where they are, they generally step down accommodation for older people. So we need to make sure our social housing output has a sufficient supply of those one-beds, whether the council are building them or buying them, uh, uh, to meet that housing need. And then the broader issue, of course, is the crisis in the private rental sector. The, the, the issue really isn't about the bed sits, uh, uh, because in many cases, the bed sits just didn't meet the most basic of standards. Uh, and very often it wasn't young people living in them, it was older people, particularly older men, 
uh, who'd lost the family home following relationship breakdown and they had the indignity of sharing bathrooms and, and substandard accommodation. Yeah. But we do. But they had somewhere sure to live. I think that's the point, is it not? They, they did, although uh, uh, we shouldn't be uh, suggesting that the solution to our, our homelessness crisis is forcing people to live in substandard and in many cases, damp-ridden, uh, low-quality bedsit accommodation, which is certainly uh, was my experience of it around the city here in Dublin. So what we need to make sure is, is in the first instance, those supports that are there at the moment to assist people uh, uh, getting into private rental accommodation, such as housing assistance payment, are fit for purpose. I mean, in Cork at the moment, for example, uh, um, uh, uh, there's only a 20% increase in the homeless HAP rate for people who are trying to avoid homelessness in Dublin. It's 50% that needs to be changed to give everybody a fighting chance to get into the private rental sector. But we absolutely need government to do far more, both in terms of providing good quality one-bedroom accommodation, whether social or private, but also ensuring there are adequate supports for those young people leaving state care uh, uh, so that they avoid falling into the trap of emergency accommodation and homelessness. Okay, one of the things you're suggesting is uh, to ban rent creases for at least three years, but the Housing Commission has warned uh, that that can actually drive down the supply, which I think falls in line with the argument that I was making a moment ago about bedsits. Uh, and whilst they were far from ideal, at least some, some people had somewhere to live. Well, first of all, the, the comments in relation to the impact of rent freezes was by Michelle Norris, one of the country's leading social housing experts. And she's right. Uh, the point she was making is if you have long-term caps on rent, uh, particularly where you're setting the rent, uh, and if you don't have any other policy measures over the long term, they do have a negative impact. And we've never disputed that. What we're proposing, however, is very, very different. Uh, we're proposing a three-year emergency ban on rent increases, and after that, then linking rent uh, uh, to wage inflation. But at the same time, to have a massive expansion in the direct capital investment in both social homes as well as affordable homes to rent. And we believe the combination of those two things will, in the first instance, protect renters because they won't have further rent increases. In fact, we give them a refundable tax credit for the three years to put a month's rent back in their pockets. But also, we would then directly increase good quality, affordable supply. Uh, uh, so there's no disagreement with Michelle Norris, but but it's important to remember the actual policy package we're proposing deals with those concerns, increases supply, while protecting rent- renters in the short to medium term. Mm, but the whole world has changed, hasn't it? Uh, and increasing supply, what does that mean today? Uh, because we were talking uh, about 10,000 people or thereabouts continuously on uh, the homeless list. Uh, that could have increased by 80 or 100,000, couldn't it? Well, keep in mind, the, the actual real level of social housing need across the state is for about 140,000 homes between those families who are on council lists and those families who are in singles who are in HAP and RAS. And that is increasing annually. Part of the problem is government over the last 30 years simply hasn't invested enough in the building and buying of new homes. There, there are some, uh, 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 I suppose, um, uh, lights at the end of the tunnel, however. I mean, again, I was in Cork recently, and as you walk around Cork, you see huge volumes of um, vacant homes, uh, uh, derelict buildings, same in Dublin, same in many of our regional towns and villages. So if government was smart, not only would it increase investment in the delivery of new built homes, uh, uh, it would also be in the business of acquiring and refurbishing large volumes of that vacant stock. In fact, many of the overshop uh, and, and town and city centre vacants lend themselves to conversion into good quality apartments, whether social, affordable or a good mix. So there are things that can be done now. No quick fixes. Nobody's saying this problem can be solved overnight. Mm. But a government with greater ambition and far greater investment 
could ensure that we were bringing good quality social and affordable homes on, on track much more speedily. But with uh, so many additional people in need of housing all of a, a sudden, uh, how great is the challenge now or is it insurmountable? Well, it's not insurmountable in my view. Uh, obviously, with respect to those people who are fleeing the war in Ukraine, we still don't know what the total number is going to be and what their accommodation needs are going to be. Martin, obviously, on BBC Radio yesterday was saying uh, about 5,000 individuals had come into the country, but many of those people are staying with family or friends. Uh, I've been following very closely what the Red Cross have been saying this morning in terms of people who were um, uh, volunteering uh, temporary accommodation for people. So look, we're going to have to keep an eye on this day by day. We do need the government to be uh, very clear in terms of what supports are there. It's still not clear, for example, whether uh, singles or families fleeing the war in Ukraine would be eligible for social housing support or HAP, etc. And the sooner we know that, the better. But I'm firmly of the view that rather than seeing one group of people's housing needs as a, a problem or a barrier to the meeting of another group of people's housing needs, if government was much, much more ambitious, we could do far, far more to tackle both the existing long-term homelessness that we have uh, uh, from uh, uh, whether it's Irish people or people living in Ireland in recent years and also meet the accommodation needs, including temporary accommodation needs. Mm, but we've done so badly with the existing needs that it really must be a concern uh, that we're adding to that. Well, what, what I will say is, and it's the point I've been making on for, for six years, the reason why we have been doing so badly in terms of meeting uh, people's housing needs, whether for social affordable housing, is government is not doing enough, not enough in terms of levels of investment or levels of delivery. Government needs to change that. And it makes no difference uh, uh, whether there are uh, people fleeing war in Ukraine or not. Mm. Government has to become much more ambitious. And if it does, it will have the active support of the opposition to ensure we meet the needs of all of the people currently living in Ireland including those who in many cases on a temporary basis will be fleeing the war in Ukraine. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always. Ono Bryn, Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, there's uh, some uh, very interesting uh, and very high numbers of uh, COVID uh, being uh, reported on uh, this week. Uh, the Irish Examiner today tells us that there's been more than 30,000 cases reported over the weekend and uh, that there's over 1,000 people in hospital who have COVID. Uh, let's speak uh, to the Irish Examiner's health correspondent, Neve Griffin. A very good morning to you, Neve, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. The figures are huge, but is there a need for us to panic? Morning, Michael. Um, well, the experts would say they're worried, but not panicking. Um, but they are seeing they are seeing a large rise, rise in cases, but so far it's not impacting on the ICU figures, which have been below 50 for a couple of weeks now, mm. um, which is still, I mean, that's still quite high. I think we're, we're getting used to high numbers, but 50 is, is much lower than you'd expect with those case numbers. Yeah. Um, they are saying, though, also they're seeing more patients for going into hospital, they don't need ICU, but they do need high dependency oxygen. Um, so that number is slowly creeping up and we don't really get that number released as frequently as the ICU numbers. OK, well, there's a lot of COVID uh, in the air, in the community, uh, in our lives. And there is, of course, a, a risk of getting it, a very high risk of getting it because it's a very transmissible disease. Uh, and that could be very serious for you uh, if you're deemed to be in one of uh, the vulnerable groups, uh, if you have an underlying illness or if you're an older person. Uh, but there's far less severe disease, generally speaking, isn't there? Uh, yes, definitely. The vaccines are working. Um, 
There was some interesting data out yesterday comparing Hong Kong, where they have quite a low vaccination rate, and Omicron is causing a very, very high death rate there, even though we think of Omicron as not, um, you know, not so severe. But we're very lucky here that we had access to good vaccines and that people, you know, went for it and, and got protectors. Mm. And when we talk about uh, the people in hospital, it sounds an awful lot, a a thousand people in hospital Mm -hmm. who have COVID, but they're not necessarily there because of COVID, uh, because anybody who's in a hospital or anybody who's been in a hospital recently will know that you're tested for COVID. So if you're in there, let's say, to get a hip replacement, you'll be tested for COVID. And if you prove positive, you feed into those figures. Yes, that's right. Um, So it's another big change from January 2021 in that people are there. They have COVID, but their other illness, you know, it's not their their main illness. It's Mm. not, like you said a few minutes ago, so severe. But of course, the problem for the nurses looking after them is whether I have severe COVID or mild COVID, I'm still contagious. So they still need to isolate me. They still need to wear PPE. And um, we heard yesterday from Catherine Motherway, an ICU doctor, intensivist, um, that if you have COVID, it's not, you can't have your operation until you're six weeks past your COVID infection. Mm. So all of those people who are in hospital with COVID will be in hospital and they'll be in hospital for another six weeks or discharged and brought back uh, as uh, the case may be Uh, but a big problem I think for hospitals but 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 out of all of these cases, uh, as you say, it's still quite a lot. I think forty-two people in ICU at the moment, uh, and if you consider that a number of them are in ICU with other reasons, maybe they've had cardiac arrest and have also proved to have COVID, or they weren't vaccinated. Uh, the figures come down to very few people in ICU, and, and for that reason, uh, I think it's um, the view of the experts uh, that there's no need to panic, as we said at the outset. Despite yes. there being a thousand people in hospital, severe illness is not very common. Um, No, no, it's definitely not. There doesn't seem to be any discussion at all about returning to lockdown, thankfully. Um, But what I have noticed more over the recent days is doctors advising if you're over 70 or if you're vulnerable or if you're visiting someone regularly who's in a nursing home or something, that you should consider keeping your mask wearing up. Mm. So when you're going into shops, if you're at work, if you can wear um, a mask. I've noticed a lot more people in working in retail and waiters and people in restaurants going back to mask wearing because they're probably concerned if you're out and about all the time. It's definitely more out there. Mm, yeah, well, I, I think there's good reason for that. I, mean, I know I wouldn't go into shop without a mask, uh, and yeah. uh, I, you know I wouldn't be hugging people or shaking hands with people or any of those things uh, that would have been uh, normal behaviour in the past uh, because it's still there and I keep my distance and do all those things. But uh, I, I think uh, there's probably a message in that, uh, and that it's very difficult for people to understand why the figures are as high, if not higher, than they were once upon a time ago when we were going into. To severe lockdowns. That's true. I mean, that's been, I suppose, the big confusion about the vaccines that they prevent um, to a large degree s- severe illness and death, but they're not the type of vaccine that prevents transmission. And it took a lot of us a long time to get our heads around that. Mm. Um, so it does, I mean, Mild illness is, of course, better than than severe illness, but you do need to be careful. I suppose it depends a lot um, on who you're interacting with. Mm. 
Mm. You know, if you're, if you're visiting your granny or if your your sister has uh, an intellectual disability or something, you know, you have different situations. So it really goes back to that personal responsibility. Like, you know, you say that you're wearing a mask. So I would wear a mask quite often, but maybe someone else feels they don't need to. Mm. So we, we all really need to, that horrible phrase again, Michael, risk assessment. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and personal responsibility. Uh, yeah. I, I think uh, if you're willing to get COVID and take your risk, that's one thing. Uh, if you'd rather not get it, uh, well, then take precautions. Uh, and uh, how um, how you gauge what's appropriate, I suppose, is up to everybody. And that comes back to that personal responsibility. Yeah. And I suppose very important to say too that this long COVID that a lot of people would hear about, mm. that can come after mild infection. Yeah. So it's not linked only to having severe COVID. Mm. And like I've interviewed people who had COVID-19 in March or April 2020 and they're still quite sick, right. you know, mm. with neurological problems, migraines, hand tremors, all kinds of things. Mm. So it's not like I wouldn't be going out there and trying to get COVID <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, and I've... I've uh, I know people, as I'm sure you do, Neve, and people listening to us who've had what the doctors call mild COVID. You speak to those people and they'll tell you, I was floored. I, I just, you know, didn't know myself uh, and wasn't right for a, a long time. Maybe not long COVID, maybe not weeks, but uh, for a couple of weeks, people very much out of sorts and very, very unpleasant with it. Uh, we're coming into the very long weekend uh, over the St. Patrick's four-day weekend. And there is some concern about people coming together and uh, 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 not sure that that's going to make much difference, is it? Or are we going to see a spike in these numbers after the weekend? Well, hopefully the good weather will hold so we can have as much outdoor celebrations as possible. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure people will also be in the pubs. It's the first Patrick's Day, you know, in two years and people will want to meet up. And I suppose the, the call from the experts really is if there's a beer garden, use that. And just try and try and be sensible. Um, I did hear Jerry Bottomer on the radio yesterday saying people should wear masks in pubs. I don't really know if that's um, mm. something that people will do, but uh, I would definitely advise outdoor partying and outdoor celebrations if you can. Go okay. to the parade. Don't go to the pub. <laughs> okay, Dave. All right, look, thank you indeed, uh, as always, uh, for joining us uh, on okay, the programme. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Bye. That's uh, Neve Griffin, health correspondent for the Irish Examiner. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Road Safety Authority, together with Ongarda Siakana, have launched the, their St. Patrick's Weekend Bank Holiday uh, appeal, uh, along with uh, the news uh, that you'd heard yesterday that a quarter of motorists admit to driving over the limit at the morning after a night out. Uh, let's uh, speak now to Sam Wade, who's the CEO of the RSA. A very good morning to you, Sam, and thanks uh, indeed for joining us. Uh, it's a long weekend. It's a, a very long weekend for that matter, longer than most long weekends we've had in this country before and the first one in many years since we've been uh, feeling safe enough to get together. Are you concerned about how people may behave over the St. Patrick's weekend? Michael, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me on to the show and that's, um, yes, uh, extremely concerned uh, in terms of road safety. Um um, I'm delighted that everyone, all of us, are going to have the chance to celebrate St. Patrick's uh, this year properly. Um, but there is a um, an ongoing concern on our roads, um, and I realise that world events that are outside our control, there's lots of death and destruction. But actually, on our doorstep, 
there's deaths um, on our roads. And the St. Patrick's uh, extended weekend, you know, our, our launch within Garda Shikana and the Road Safety Authority, we are appealing for people to um, be mindful that, yes, they can enjoy themselves, but plan ahead and, and make sure that they don't get behind the wheel and, and drink drive because it continues to be a problem. Um, it continues to be um, part of collisions, uh, related collisions, and, and one in ten collisions uh, fatalities um, fatal collisions are, are alcohol related. So, uh, and the morning after is is one of the the key areas where um, we would ask people to be mindful of, um, particularly um, with with your family friends. Mm. But also, let's not forget uh, there'll be people working over the weekend, and they'll be getting up to go to work, and they need to be mindful. Of, well, have you have you had one too many the night before, and is it safe to drive? And can you? can you take public transport or a taxi or get one of your work colleagues to drive? Yeah, you're not telling people how to behave. Go to the pub if that's what you want to do and up to you how much you drink, but uh, take into consideration what you've consumed before you drive uh, and even if it was the night before. When you talk about people getting behind the wheel the morning after the night before, if they are over the limit, do you think that that's, generally speaking, unintentional? It's um, people uh, we're trying and have been raising the awareness of um, removing people's ignorance in terms of well, how many drinks is it okay to have the night before before you drive? Uh, typically, a, a pint of beer um, takes two hours to work out of your system. Um, so, if you've had four or five um, pints of beer, and that's there's two units in a pint of beer or one unit in a glass of wine, um, you know individuals know. Um, uh, broadly speaking, if they're safe to drive the following morning, whether getting up at six o'clock in the morning to go to work or doing the school run at seven or eight o'clock, so um, people do need to be think, think and plan before um, before they get behind the wheel. So, if you have five pints, does that mean it takes ten hours for the alcohol to come out of your system? Absolutely, absolutely. So if you're not getting to, to bed until, say, midnight or one in the morning, then uh, that's a long time for that to get out of your system. But also there is tiredness and fatigue plays a major role, Michael, because uh, when you're tired, when you've had a lack of sleep, um, possibly four hours sleep as opposed to eight hours, that exponentially increases the risk um, that you're not fit to drive um, the, in, in the morning after. And that's something that, again, people need to be mindful of. Mm. And the sounds of things, uh, there's a a lot of people who wouldn't be fit to drive until mid-afternoon, if not late afternoon. And and this this is something that um, people should not be taking the risk. Um, You're putting yourself at risk. You're putting others at risk. And and many people um, probably don't realise, or if they do realise, they need to be reminded that there is a consequence to all of this. If if you were basically um, caught for drink driving, uh, you're going to lose your license for six months if you're detected drink driving. Yeah. And and people, individuals need to think, well, what would that mean to you or your family if you lost your license? What would it mean to your job prospects, to your work environment? What would your work colleagues uh, uh, and your employer, most importantly, look upon in terms of you not having that, that license. So it, it has a fundamental change to people. And mm. that's before that's before we, we look at the heartache and pain that, that you may cause if you're involved in a collision, you're the underlying causal factor of the collision, and someone's either seriously injured, changes their life forever, or, or worse still, a fatality. And, and you as an individual... Um, you look back and, well, you shouldn't have got behind the wheel that following morning because you, you've changed someone's life, you've, you've, you've taken someone's life. And that's, uh, 
that's everyone needs to be mindful of that. And um, and I know that um, we're here to to enjoy St Patrick's after a mm. couple of years of unusual circumstances. But um, it, it is to be to take greater care. Um, we launched we we launched the uh, campaign yesterday, and and within I, I was barely back in the office from launching the campaign and another fatality on, on, on the road yeah, and yeah. motor on for and my my heart and, and thoughts go out to the family. Um, but this seems to be the, the occurrence of road deaths is alarming in twenty twenty two. Um at at this moment there's thirty eight fatalities year to date. Um and that's that's up twenty one from last year. Mm. Um the majority of those are drivers. There's within that thirty eight there's there's nine motorcyclists and it, and it is something that uh, so, so, so this is actually someone dying on our roads in Ireland every other day. Right. It's a shocking statistic. And you've been looking at the drink and drug driving arrests over the course of a, a year or, or thereabouts. And in that time period, about a, a thousand people, roughly speaking, got up 10% out of more than 10,000 people, got up in the morning to go to work or whatever it was they were going to do and they were arrested and lost their licence. Uh, and I take it that uh, there's quite a, a number of them who lost their job along with losing their licence. Well, this is... Um, and Garda Shikona, yes, I've issued the, the statistics. And uh, in terms of people losing their job, well, uh, this is the risk that people take. There, there is a there is knock-on effects of the... knock-on effects to the individual, knock-on effects... Uh, Sometimes their friends, RSA carried out a survey of people who've been convicted and uh, their, their friends, who they thought they were their friends, they actually distanced themselves from the individual. Um, so there is a, um, a stigma that, 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 that is attached, attached to uh, this type of offence. And it is something that communities more and more yeah. um, recognise that, well, actually, it's not acceptable. And... Um, and and that's where communities and friends and family you need to actually support each other and um and call it out and, and encourage people that they've had a few drinks yeah. and and yes they're having a good time over the extended bank holiday but they need to call out their friends and say you've you've had a few drinks you can't drive and and also um when when you're offered a lift it's like it's a case of not stepping into that car as a passenger if you know that mm. the person's had had a few drinks because that is um again it's trying to encourage better behavior the other side to all of this i, I think sam is that people might feel hard done by if they're caught over the limit the morning after the night before and will argue that they hadn't been drinking, they were drinking the night before but they hadn't had a drink that day and so on but they were over the limit and the law is the law and whether it's right or it's wrong it is what it is and if you're caught you're off the road and that's the end of it. But I'm amazed by the statistics you have about people who've taken a drink and got into the car immediately afterwards. Yes and this is where um People are, in terms of society and, and road safety in Ireland, and 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 all the enforcement that's come along alongside the education piece. Um, there, there are. Um, it's a lame excuse now for someone to say, "Well, I didn't realise I would have been over the limit." Um, there is a piece here that actually would would a counter argument say that um, from an enforcement point of view, 
where um, we need to toughen up. Mm. And, and that's, uh, I say that based on, I've, I've been, for the last two years, I've been benchmarking around the world, and that was part of developing the new road safety strategy. And, uh, and there is a case of, um, in terms of the number of penalty points that um, you get when, you, when, you, when you're drink driving, mm. whether it's the morning after or, or during the day, um, there is a case of, well, actually, um, the, the consequence, um, if I compare and contrast with other, other nations, uh, and that's internationally, not just our, our neighbours looking over the fence, it, it is a case of um, th- there is a consequence. And, and we do have to um, consider, well, toughening up in the consequence because that does help change behaviour as well as the yeah. education and, and proactive um, programme piece. But I, I just can't understand why people would have a, a, a drink when they are driving. Uh, and that is the case. I mean, there are some people who could have a, a lot to drink, as I understand it, based on their build or... Uh, whatever their constitution uh, uh, is, uh, that they could have a lot to drink and probably wouldn't be over the limit. Uh, but you'd have to assume that most people who'd have a, a couple of drinks uh, wouldn't drive, or I'd have thought that would be the case. But 34% of motors you've discovered have said that they've had two or more drinks uh, before driving. Yes, and that's, uh, that, that, that's people uh, knowingly breaking the law. Um, because let, let's not... Uh, that's not uh, a mask over. You know, this, this is breaking the law. That's a third and, of people um, driving. And, and it, why, well, yes, why, why would they have a drink? This, this is where um, this is where um, they, they can say, "Well, actually, you didn't know," or it's been deemed acceptable. But um, it's it's not acceptable because you're breaking the law. Um, I've yet to meet someone to say to me, "Well, actually, it's acceptable to break the law." Mm. And, and that's whether it's road safety or, or, or broader public safety. Um, they, it, this is where people are knowingly breaking the law. And, mm. and that's um, the, the, the consequence. People take that risk. Mm. Um, but they're actually taking the risk of putting others and other people's lives in danger yeah. and not just their own. And that's the selfish behaviour yeah, well, that, I, I, that, I, I, that I, we've witnessed and yeah. what we see. And it's very selfish. Uh, I, I think I overstated it. It's one in ten who've said they've had a, a drink and decided to drive straight afterwards in, in the last 12 months. And 34% of them said two or more drinks, uh, which could be three or ten, I take it. Uh, but it, it's an incredible attitude. It's very hard to understand. No, it's interesting that yesterday, and no later than yesterday, I, I had um, a discussion with a, a victim of a road collision who was fortunate to survive the road collision. And um, she was telling me that in her local village, she she uh, called out to the, the local landlord um, that a person who was drinking excessively and then uh, went and jumped into the car. And so I think actually communities and and um People have a responsibility to. Um, they, they may feel awkward. It may, they may feel that they don't want to say anything. But um, if there's if they're sitting beside people in their own village in their own community, um, they they need to be courageous enough to say that's unacceptable. You know, you, you can't you can't step into the car. Um, you know, get the bus or, or can we call you a taxi? So it's actually helping each other and supporting each other to behave in a more, um, a less selfish way. All right. Well, they're very clear messages uh, for people listening. Hopefully they'll heed them over the coming days. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sam Wade, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Road Safety Authority of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
If you were listening to us earlier on, or indeed uh, if you've been watching uh, television news uh, at this stage, uh, you'd have uh, seen the former editor of uh, the Russian state-run Channel One network on television and cut off very quickly when she stood behind a newsreader with a placard that said, Stop the war, don't believe uh, the propaganda, they're lying to you. Marina Ozanikova uh, was also shouting uh, during that broadcast, stop the war, no to war. As I say, uh, they cut her off very quickly and she is under arrest. I don't think it's expected uh, that Marina will be seen anytime in the near future. But if what she did on television was brave, it was most likely also uh, a way of signing her death warrant and if it wasn't the way to sign your own death warrant if it wasn't suicidal as such uh, the recorded message that she left in tandem with that appearance on television yesterday would have sealed her fate what is currently happening in Ukraine is crime. Russia is a country aggressor. All responsibility for this aggression lies on the conscience of one person, Vladimir Putin. My father is Ukrainian, my mother is Russian. They were never enemies. This necklace around my neck signifies that Russia should immediately stop this. Stop this fratricidal war and our brotherly nations can make peace with each other. Unfortunately, for the last several years, I worked at Channel One promoting Kremlin propaganda. And for that, I am very ashamed right now. I am ashamed that I allowed lies to be sold from TV screens, that I allowed Russian people to be zombified. We stayed quiet when all of this was just getting started in 2014. We didn't come out to protest when the Kremlin poisoned Navalny. We continued to quietly watch this inhumane regime. Now the whole world has turned away from us. Ten generations of our descendants won't be able to wash away the shame of this fratricidal war. A, a brave lady uh, who will be in the thoughts of many people this morning. That's Marina Ozanevikova, uh, uh, formerly uh, the editor of Channel One in Russia. Uh, let's speak now to Roger Cole, who's chairperson of the Peace and Neutrality Alliance. Good morning to you, Roger, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here. Joining us after a meeting of uh, the Irish anti-war movement, uh, which you spoke at yesterday evening. Tell us a, a little bit about what you were saying and what the mood uh, amongst people there was, if you would, please. Well, as you know, uh, or might know, that uh, the Peace and Neutrality Alliance was one of the organisations that organized a massive demonstration against the war, uh, an illegal war, invasion and conquest of Iraq. And we have exactly the same view towards the illegal invasion and attempted conquest of the Ukraine by the Russians. They're both the same, they're both imperial wars, and they're both causing the deaths of thousands of people. So, you know, there's no difference, and we're mm. totally opposed to it, and we were calling for the withdrawal of Russian troops from the Ukraine. Mm, okay, and those calls, because it's not just uh, calls uh, from groups like your own, but uh, across the world, uh, people are making such calls, but those calls are, are falling on deaf ears. 
Yes, uh, just as they fall on deaf ears uh, when the Americans invaded, uh, along with the Poles and the, the British and, and, and uh, the uh, Australians when they invaded Iraq. There are people who control our states and they pay no attention to the people who are not in favour of these endless wars. Mm. So where's the solution if uh, the Russians aren't listening? I don't know. I mean, other than we can only do what we can do. We can only protest mm. against these wars. We can only mm. oppose them. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's just horrific, the whole thing. And I, mm. I can't understand why he did it. it didn't, you know, it's just, it, you know, you would have thought that after all the experience and all the horrific killing that the Americans did in Iraq, that, that uh, the Russians would then proceed to do exactly the same. Mm. You know, maybe mm. this is, Maybe they're just these imperial powers think they could do whatever they like. Yeah. Uh, is Ukrainian surrender uh, the solution? Uh, look, the key thing is to end the war. You, you know, like we're, we're celebrating or mocking, or we're celebrating mm. the wrong word, we're mocking the beginning of our civil war uh, because people thought they had to accept a deal which a lot of other people didn't agree with when, when the treaty was signed. But it ended the war. It ended the war this, in the 26 counties. It might be that, they, that, that the choice is, do you end the war by agreeing to something you don't want to agree? I, I, it's not, I mean, I'm not in the Ukrainian. It's not my decision to make. But I know in my own country, uh, my father, who lived in, in um, Dublin at, at that time, uh, of the War of Independence, uh, he, he, he wanted the war to end, just like most people did. And he had to uh, agree with them. Mm. He didn't agree with it, but he said, "Well, look, this is the best we can get." Mm. And the war at the British left, uh, and it would, maybe that's the way you can get the Russians to go. You agree with something that uh, you don't like because there's no alternative. But that's this. This is a decision for the Ukrainian people. It's got nothing to do with me. It's their call. Mm. I know, but. Uh we're watching some very serious things happen on our, our screens. It's not just Ukrainian blood, it's, it's Russian blood. Uh, uh, war uh, is a loser's game. There are no winners. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, like uh, when the Americans invaded uh, Vietnam, mm. I think, what is it, 64,000 American soldiers were killed and uh, 2 million Vietnamese. I mean, war is, war is horrific. That's why organisations like PANA exist. It's, it's to try and argue that we should stay neutral. We shouldn't get involved in these wars. We should use whatever influence we have, as we are now on the Security Council, to find ways of ending these wars. Mm. Yeah, but do we stand by uh, and watch the Ukrainians kill themselves slowly? Uh, because I, I, I imagine uh, that whatever we're hearing about Putin's uh, efforts uh, being frustrated by the brave battle that the Ukrainians are, are putting up, uh, that his determination will mean that uh, he'll win this war uh, maybe slower than was anticipated. Uh, uh, if he doesn't win it, he'll flatten the country and des- destroy the country and obliterate uh, the male adult population while he, he's at it. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's not impossible. But you know, you there, you end, you end in, in, in uh, no fly, no fly zone, and there will be a nuclear war. Mm. And not only will all the Ukrainians die, but will die. Everybody in Europe will die. It gets worse. Everybody in the world will die of a nuclear war. Mm. You know, that's not much of a choice. But I mean, you know, that's not. I don't think people all over the world want to die. 
mm. you know, in a nuclear war. Because mm. the difference is, okay. when, when the Americans invaded Iraq, mm. they told everybody that, that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Mm. Turned out to be a lie. Of course. Yeah. Have weapons mm. But in the case of the Russia state, the Russians do have nuclear weapons. And if there's a war between NATO and, and uh, Russia, there will be a nuclear war, and everybody will die. Even everybody in, in even countries like Neutral Ireland will die. And that's not a choice that mm. I want. I'm sure you don't want it. I'm sure most people don't want it. Okay. It's not a nice choice. I mean, mm. anybody who lives lives knows very well you have to make choices. They're not all, you know, it's not a good choice or a bad choice. It's just mm. choices that are available to people. Okay. So we don't call his bluff. Um, we don't stand up to Putin um, because we'll all die. Uh, so that means uh, resistance is futile. Uh, and uh, if No, it is not uh, futile. We resisted British imperialism. Mm. We fought a national war of independence against uh, Britain. Mm. Resistance is not futile. Okay. But uh, ha- have uh, the Ukrainians... Nevertheless, when, when, when the deal was done, it wasn't liked by a lot of Irish people and we had a mm. civil war. Mm. But nevertheless, it would be wrong to say that resistance is not futile. But you, you know, I mean, the last time when Cromwell invaded Ireland, he killed a third of the population. Mm. So, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't not resist wars, but the consequences are terrible. And this time round, <coughs> you're talking about the end of all life on the planet. Yeah, that's, um, if that's how it panned out, uh, because uh, if you get back uh, to that Cold War situation and uh, will one pull the trigger... Uh, because if one does, uh, we're all gone, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, but uh, if you, you you don't call the bluff, well, then you uh, don't intervene, which is the situation we're in now, and you leave the Ukrainians uh, to uh, their uh, grave that uh, Ukraine will be for them. Uh, and if that's the case, when Putin is finished with Ukraine, what happens next? Does he move on to Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Finland? Or when do you intervene, or do you do you give Putin free reign uh, to invade wherever and whenever he wishes? Well, look, I have no idea what he's going to do, and you don't either. Nobody has any idea what he's going to do. But you can't assume that Putin, when he came to power, he wanted to join NATO himself. He wanted to have a situation where they, they Russia like America, were actually all in the same organization on the basis of the enemy at the time were terrorists. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, nobody knows what Putin thinks or doesn't think. <clears throat> and I don't go along with just Putin. You know, Putin no. is a you know not a single individual. He's he the figurehead, yeah. Our yeah. class of yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they might decide that, that enough is enough. You know what I mean? That... Yeah that fantastically brave protest by that uh, Russian commentator. Yeah. Uh, it was incredible, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, a, yeah. it's an indication that the idea that all the Russians support this war is wrong. Yeah. I mean, I mean not maybe most do. Yeah. Uh, because well, most of them don't know what's going on, and 200,000 people have left the country, apparently. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, people, people, no, I mean, are, people are people the world over, and people... Have a, a sense of dignity and uh, respect for other human life. Yeah, yeah. But people survive. You know, even after Cromwell killed a third of our population, we didn't give in. We we kept going and seeking our national independence, and that will be the same with the Ukrainians. I mean, but the, if the alternative is nuclear war, where everybody dies, mm. horrific as that choice is, 
I'm afraid I don't want a nuclear war where everybody in the world dies. Okay, right. I'm not afraid of it. I mean, I think that's the actual choice. And given yeah. that mm-hmm. choice, mm-hmm. Yeah. advocate that we all die. Oh, absolutely. And for many of us, it would be a slow and horrible death at that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That is the choice, you see. That's the problem. Because all these nuclear weapons actually exist. And there are thousands of thousands of them. <clears throat> I mean, when the Americans dropped bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm. they wiped out entire cities. But the, the, they're tiny little weapons compared to the existing uh, nuclear weapons. Roger, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Roger Cole, who's a chairperson of uh, the Peace and Neutrality Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, imagine if uh, your birth cert had uh, been falsified uh, and uh, officially you were registered to be the child of people who had adopted you rather than uh, the people uh, who were your real parents. Uh, It's something that has happened for decades in this country, despite it becoming a criminal offence in this country since 1874. In a report published yesterday by the government's special rapporteur in child protection, Conor O'Mahony, found that authorities in this country had been consciously turning a blind eye to this practice for decades. Let's speak uh, to Susan Lohan, who's a co-founder of uh, the Adoption Rights Alliance. Good morning to you, Susan, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I take it that that headline finding came as no surprise to you. Absolutely not. Um, Me personally, but adoption rights generally. We have been uh, making a trail to the door the doors of the DEN Adoption Board, now they're called the Adoption Authority of Ireland. Every single children's minister bar one since 2001 on this issue. So if anybody wanted to get the minutes of meetings that we held with various ministers, they would find that we had flagged this subject ad nauseum and nothing happened. And it really wasn't until um, the TRESA and um, Andre Donnelly case in the High Court in 2018 that then Minister for Children Catherine Zappone was, um, you know, very much um, hastened to make this announcement about the fact that Tusla were sitting on a cache of these files, all of which were from St. Patrick's Guild. Now, they had sat on those files since 2014 and they had made various deals with St. Patrick's Guild. The state offered to to offer St. Patrick's Guild uh, legal protection against, um, or financial protection against their being sued. Um, But still, nothing happened. And, you know, it it just, I, I just feel my heart goes out to all of these people um, who have discovered that they are not the natural parents of of the people who who brought them up. Now, within the 151 cases now of the St. Patrick's Guild victims, um, some of those those people have always known they were adopted because it's very hard to keep something like that a secret. And I'm putting in in inverted commas, adopted. But they didn't check, they didn't understand, I think, fully the degrees of illegality behind it and profiteering by the various um, adoption mm. agencies but I personally Michael my oldest friend in the world she is one of the victims and she had no idea that she was not the biological child of her parents and likewise with her siblings 
or she had two siblings. Yeah. So when did she find out? Her. I'm sorry, Susan. She when? found out. No, no, no. She found out in October 2019. Mm. So at what age? Even at um, 50. Roughly 54. Yeah, in her 50s. 54. I, I mean, that yeah. must just turn your whole world on its head. Well, it absolutely did. But, you know, you know, we talk regularly about this now. We can bore for Ireland on the subject of adoption. But, you know, she says it explains so much now. I mean, the three of them, we, we used to joke as kids, you know, I was the adopted one. She wasn't. And, you know, you know, teenagers, you're always giving out about your parents. And I said, God, are you sure you're not adopted? Ha ha. Um, because... They looked so unlike the three siblings. They didn't resemble their parents at all. And there was a tension in that family. So it explained a lot for her. And she said, you know, she's so glad in some ways to have this explanation now. But the state have known about it for decades and did nothing. So in her case, um, she is one of the very, very lucky ones whose natural mother is still alive um, and she has reconnected with her natural mother and with cousins um, who have welcomed her with open arms. But others in that group, they have missed the opportunity to ever meet their parents. And, and that is the particularly unforgivable side of this thing because it can be very difficult to achieve any resolution. But I'd point out to your listeners, Michael, that this is the situation that all adopted people um, face, whether they're so-called legally or illegally adopted. Mm. Because TUSLA and the Adoption Authority, the Department of Children and Youth Affairs, they have been operating like the Wild West um, when it comes to giving us our personal information. We get blanket refusal and then you have to fight like, you know, a heavyweight boxer to try and get anything from them. And the delays are interminable. We have social workers, untrained, disinterested social workers carrying out genealogical searching. So I'm so glad that Conor O'Mahony has nailed this in his report. You know, as we have over the years, he's pointed out that, you know, the state has uh, obligations under three sets of laws, national, um, EU and UN conventions to which we are parties to have absolutely ensured that people's identities were recorded properly and that, and that it's been a criminal offence to falsify birth registration since 1874. It's crazy, isn't it? So yeah. It is. Mm, mm. Uh, given that uh, it, it was well-known, well-accepted and there were blind eyes turned to... Uh, uh, indeed, it, it was admitted to in 1997 by the Sisters of Charity, wasn't it? That's right. And and I know that case very well because I lived in London at that point and uh, some, uh, a, a group of natural mothers in Ireland called Adoption Loss, the Natural Parents Network of Ireland. They asked me to meet up with Tressa uh, Donnelly in London. So I'm well aware with that case, of that case. So Tressa fought and fought and fought and fought to have... Uh, to have her son informed that his birth had never been registered and upon confirmation from St. Patrick's Guild that he'd never been informed he was actually adopted as, and that was the case for his brother. Now, Andre, known as Paddy, now I'm not, I'm not mm. Paddy Farrelly, I mean, it was a, a high court case in 19, 
uh, sorry, in 2018. Paddy was in his mid-50s when he discovered he was not the natural child of his parents. And he'd endured a very brutal upbringing at the hands of his so-called father. So these acts, they are not without consequences. And again, I commend um, Conor O'Mahony for his repeated use of references to trauma. Because the trauma in all of these cases, for any of us who are desperate to uncover identities, is, is, is huge. Because everybody else in the country... Um, has an automatic access to their birth cert. And the gas, well, it's not the gas thing, but the, you know, the, the perverted nature of the, the state in, in these cases is that the subject of these identities, we, the adopted people or the illegally adopted people, we were the only ones denied that information. So every government department could go and interrogate our records. Every social worker could go and interrogate our records. Mm. Every village gossip could go and interrogate our birth certs mm. because they knew our original names. We didn't. Mm. So the state has so many questions to answer and I fully support the idea that Conor O'Mahony has uh, latched onto, which is the notion of a truth commission. And I want to commend my, my colleagues, um, Claire, um, Claire McGettrick and Maeve O'Rourke, who are behind the Plon Project. Now, Maeve O'Rourke, uh, Dr. Maeve O'Rourke, she is uh, an expert in human rights, and she first touted this idea of a truth commission, a transitional justice uh, approach to all adoption in Ireland because back in 2014 I mean we fought like I said like heavyweight boxers Mm. against the then government for bringing in the terms of reference the limited terms of reference for the commission of investigation into mother and baby homes because it only looked at the day-to-day living conditions didn't look at the raison d'etre didn't look at forced adoption didn't look at any of us who were born outside of mother and baby homes so What the state has very cynically sought to do is to investigate every scandal associated with adoption in a silo approach. Oh, we look at illegal adoptions this week. We look at the diet, the dietary and work uh, conditions of mothers and babies in in those institutions, Mm. etc., etc. When what the dogs on the street know is that we need an overarching investigation of adoption in Ireland full stop. And the constant delay in actually delivering on that reassures that people will be re-traumatised and that many will go to their graves without having had any resolution. And that is unforgivable. Mm. Uh, And uh, I think that is uh, the reason for going for this Truth Commission because despite it being illegal to falsify birth certs since 1874, if people Mm. go to the Truth Commission, they tell what they know uh, and give all of the... uh, There will be no consequence uh, and that will encourage people to come forward and that's what you're happy about. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Now, uh, whilst it's unlikely that any individual will ever be held accountable. I do want people to put pressure on the government to hold the the finances of the various religious orders accountable. I mean, do do people realise that the Sisters of Charity, which is behind St. Patrick's Guild, the the architect of the 151 cases in Conor O'Mahony's report, 
they are the same order sitting over at the land on St. Vincent's campus in Dublin 4 and the government is proposing to gift that same order the National Maternity Hospital. Now that should have people jumping up off their seats and phoning their TDs immediately on this. We we seem to have, you know, I whilst you know it's very appropriate in a truth mm-hmm. commission, you know, to say to people, well, you know, you can, we're not going to seek to um, prosecute you, mm-hmm. but the institution behind those crimes should certainly be held to account. And under no circumstances should we be continuing to offer them government contracts. I mean, that's outrageous. The taxpayer is going to be asked to pick up the bill again when, you know, these these religious orders acting on behalf of the state um, are, are at fault just as much as the state was. I read a fascinating interview with you, Susan, in uh, the Guardian newspaper under the title A Nun Called Me a Destroyer of Lives, How Adoption Rights Activists Susan Owen Fought the Irish Establishment. And people can read that, I'm sure, for themselves online. Uh, And uh, it tells us how you met your own mother in the mid-80s, but it was 2016, I think, uh, before uh, you were able to find out that you actually had siblings uh, so you know better about this type of fight than anybody Uh, there's talk about a state apology is that something that you would welcome Mm. well it'll be meaningless unless there are uh, immediate uh, widespreading actions on the part of the government to you know establish people's identities ASAP, and number two, hand over those identities to them. Otherwise, you know, the the apology is meaningless. And it actually, it's so, I find it personally distressing to listen to the likes of Roderick O'Gorman and Micheál Martin constantly refer, oh, but we've apologised for that, we've apologised for that. Utterly meaningless, unless they take actions to to remedy the problem. And Conor O'Mahony is, um, you know, he expounds at length in his report our international and national obligations. And he talks about the re-traumatisation of people. And referring back to my oldest friend, you know, we've known each other since we were four, uh, when Tusla social workers met up with her um, to give, you know, to tell her... um, the truth behind her parentage, they refused to give her um, any of her records. And I cannot tell you the upset that that caused. And it's a very, it's almost a psychopathic um, action on the part of the social workers to do that. They watched her crumble. They watched her upset. They watched her traumatised. They couldn't explain why they weren't handing over her records to her. And there's been a, a 180 degree turn about, I gather, in the last few months in that uh, with newly with people who are newly discovering they were illegally adopted in this fashion, they are handing over their records. Now, it begs the question, why didn't that happen from the start? But why is it not happening for the 100,000 of us, at least, mm. who are uh, looking for that information? Now, we're supposedly legally adopted. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, as Conor O'Mahony thankfully also bears out our, our theory on this, which is that the vast majority of adoptions in Ireland were illegal in some form because they were forced. 
So mm. the, the irony is, is that Roderick O'Gorman, in addition to being the Minister for Children, is also the Minister for Equality. And yet his department, his officials, uh, have single-handedly managed to bring in a system that introduces new levels of discrimination against those adopted people who were supposedly legally adopted after 1952. I mean, you could not make it up. Susan, I have to leave there, but thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's Susan Lohan, co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time, on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Patrick Smith of Trim Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And we have a lot of burglaries to get through this morning, Sergeant, uh, and we'll begin with the first of those in Dunshockland. Good morning, Michael. Um, the Garda in Dunshockland are investigating a burglary which occurred between the hours of 4.25pm and 7.25pm on the 8th of March in the Nightfield Park area of Dunsany. Uh, a small amount of burglary was taken during the course of this burglary. So, as usual, we're asking for anyone who, visit, anyone who was in the area or noticed any persons or vehicles acting suspiciously, would you please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01-801-0600. To trim for the next burglary. Yes, Michael, we have another burglary, a number of burglaries here this morning and this one occurred in the trim area. Uh, it occurred approximately half five on the 11th of March 2022 in the Tully area, Tully area of Trim. Uh, we've established that entry was gained through the rear kitchen window of the premises. So again, we're just looking for any local information or any, anybody knows any persons or vehicles acting suspiciously to contact my colleagues here on Trim Guard Station on 046 And to Navin on Saturday night, Sunday morning for our next burglary. Yes, Gardaí and Navin are investigating a burglary which occurred at a licensed premises at Cross Guns in Navin between the hours of 2.50 and 3.15 a.m. on the 13th of March. Uh, three males entered the premises and a small amount of cash was stolen. Now, we viewed CCTV which showed three males involved and they were all wearing hats, baseball caps, masks and gloves. Um, again, we're just looking for any local information or if anyone was in the area at that time in the morning to contact my colleagues at Naval Garda Station on 046-903-6100. And an aggravated burglary last Wednesday night in Drogheda next. Yes, Garda Drogheda are investigating an aggravated burglary which occurred in the Sycamore close area of Drogheda on the 9th of March at approximately 10.30pm. Uh, three males forced their way into the home of the injured party. The CCTV was gathered and it shows the three suspects exit- exiting the housing estate approximately 10 minutes later at 10.40pm. So again, we're looking for any local information or anyone who's in the area to please contact my colleagues at Drodegard Station on 041-987-4200. And some jewellery taken on Thursday evening in a burglary in RD. Yes, again, my colleagues in RD are investigating a burglary which occurred in the Cookstown area um, in RD at approximately 6.40pm on the 10th of March. As you said, Michael, quantity of jewellery was taken during the course of the burglary. And again, if anyone knows that and suspicious, please contact my colleagues at RD on 041-685-3222. OK, and the last burglary to report on today in Ashburn. Yes, we have uh, my colleagues at Ashburn Garage Station investigating the burglary at a private residence at the Ward area in Ashburn at 7.50pm on the 11th of March. The homeowner returned home to find a number of documentation and items had been moved. Through CCTV, Gardaí established that three males were involved and entry was gained through the back door. 
again, we're looking for anyone for public assistance. And if anyone was in the dairy at the time or observed any suspicious vehicles, to contact my colleagues at Ashburn on 01. 801 And to Dundalk, very early hours of Sunday morning and a window put through. Yes, Guardian Dundalk are investigating the criminal damage to a window of a local takeaway premises at Roden Place in Dundalk at approximately 5.30am on the 12th of March. Um, investigating Guardian was viewed the CCTV where the male suspect picked up a traffic cone and smashed it, smashed it through the window of the premises. Um, the suspect was wearing a hoodie and a face mask. Now, Gary have gathered CCTV and tracked the suspect's movements, and he's seen leaving down the lane from, from the delivery lane. He then turns left into ramparts and travels in the direction of the inner relief road. So, again, we're just looking to see if anyone was out and about at that time in the morning. Would you contact my colleagues at the Dark Large Station on 042 938 Okay, and we'll conclude by just saying that uh, be careful uh, if you've home heating oil at your home because there are thieves out there, uh, but we're over time and we have to leave it there. And thank you indeed, Sergeant Patrick Smith of Trim Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk next Tuesday and we'll return on this programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. See you then. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.